please turn with me to Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. where we will examine the truth of the heavenly orientation of saving faith. Saving faith has an orientation, a direction, a forward-lookingness to heaven. Let me read beginning at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, literally as it is now, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. These verses come in the middle of a section dedicated to the saving faith of Abraham and his family. Beginning in verse 8, there are several displays of righteous ones living by faith, as the last chapter put it. And they're expounded, they're explained. First, by faith, Abraham left his birth country and gained both salvation and the promise of a future life with God in heaven. Isaac and Jacob shared this promise. Next, by faith, Abraham and Sarah gained a son, and through him an innumerable offspring. Lord willing, we will see next week in verse 17 that Abraham, by faith, willingly offers that son to God, knowing that God is the God of resurrection power. So, in our text, when verse 13 begins, these all, it's referring to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah. The verse reads that all these died in faith. Now remember, Enoch didn't die in faith. He was translated in faith. He immediately went to be with God by faith. So he can't be included in these all these. So these all doesn't include everyone in the chapter so far, but because of this paragraph's placement and Enoch's translation, we know that these all refer to Abraham and his family. And what it says about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah is that they died in faith without receiving the things promised. Oh, they received promises but they didn't receive the things of the promises. They didn't receive the goal or the fulfillment of the promises. So what did they receive in this life? And we asked the question that we asked two weeks ago, how did they in their own minds reconcile the promise, their experience and faith? 
You may recall that the partial answer to this question was given back in verse 10. And in a sense, verses 13 to 16 are just an expansion on verse 10. Back then, we had to understand Abraham's thinking in this matter, and it was summed up this way. He understood that the promise was ultimately one of eternal life with God in heaven. Abraham knew that the earthly places and promises, as real as they were in some sense, were not ultimate. He received a tiny sliver of land for a burial plot for Sarah and a few children. That's what he had when he died. He did not receive all the things that had been promised. That, that's a quick review and summary. But now what these verses tell us is that this way of thinking, this faith, was shared by all of his believing family. Saving faith had for them a heavenly orientation. In other words, they lived life facing forward. They lived life with an eye for the spiritual and the future. Not the past, not even the present. Amen. How did they come to this orientation, this, this attitude, this knowledge, this faith? Well, the second half of verses 13 and then verses 14 and 15 explain. And it tells of their life lived by faith before they died in faith. So let's look first at their living by faith. Living by faith. Let me read verse 13 again. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. And, and now their life is described. It's summed up in three parallel verbal phrases. But having seen them, and having greeted them, and having acknowledged. There's the three verbs. This is how Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah lived their life by faith. Each of them lived over 100 years. None of them received the things that were promised. But at the same time, their lives were not entirely destitute of the things promised either. Right? They had them in promise form. They had these things as a sure word from God. Now let's spend a little time looking at these three verbs that characterized their lives of faith. Again, they are having seen, having greeted, and having acknowledged. First, having seen them. Having seen them, that is, the things promised. God revealed to them that Canaan was not the true promised land. But that, in fact, it was but a shadow of the reality of heaven. These four believers knew that their restless, tent-based life in Canaan pointed to rest in God in heaven. They saw the promised heaven. Not by traveling there on a camel, Eli. Yeah. They didn't get a camel and, and drive to heaven. They weren't taken up to the third heaven like Paul was. They didn't see it that way. 
They saw it by the eye of faith. Because remember, to see is to believe. To see with spiritual eyes, that's to believe. Remember what Jesus said, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you see it. Right? To see the kingdom of God is to believe and therefore to enter it. Our world says exactly the opposite. What does science teach us today? Well, to see is to believe. You, you can't believe until you see physically. And you shouldn't believe anything that you can't see. Right? Exactly wrong. The Christian says, oh, no, I believe so that I can see. And when I believe, oh, then I see wonderful things from God. They're not mirages. They're not unreality. We see things better through faith than any man or woman does with just the physical eye. God declared the facts to Abraham that he was the true God and that there was a coming seed who would triumph over sin and that faith's destination was to be with God in man's true home, heaven. This is part of the notitia of saving faith. You remember that word? Faith has content. Faith has notions. There are truths that our faith is rooted on and founded in. Well, this is an example of that. This is what saving faith rests in, the truths of the word of God. And these four believed God. And that's the essentia, the agreement of saving faith. These people didn't dismiss or ignore the promises. They understood them and they believed them. Remember verse 1 in this chapter? How does saving faith function? Well, it takes the promises of God. There's the content. You have to have stuff from God to believe properly, right? It takes the promises of God and celebrates them as a reality. Faith gives the future hopes promised in the word of God a kind of real life present existence in the souls of believers. That was verse one. And Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah all exercised God-given faith. They saw the things promised. Some of you might be thinking, perhaps based on your background, man, some of that seems kind of like a stretch, Pastor. <laughs> okay, then let me ask you this. What did Jesus say about all this? He actually talked about this very subject. What did Jesus say about it? Well, in John 8, 56, Jesus said, Abraham saw, does that word sound familiar? Saw my day and was glad. That sounds like the eyes of faith celebrating the promises of God and them becoming real. That's exactly what it is. Jesus' John 8 sermon fits with the Hebrews 11.1 sermon. Because, of course, it's all his word. Abraham knew about the Christ. He saw Jesus physically. I, I don't even think he knew his name. 
There's no reason to think Abraham even knew his name. But he didn't need to know his human name in order to know him, to see him, to believe in him. His faith was so strong that he was glad. He celebrated. He rejoiced at the promise of the coming of Jesus Christ. So these four saw things. They learned of them and they believed them. But they didn't just see things. They also greeted them from afar. That's the second verbal phrase, having greeted them from afar. Now, the word greeted is, is simply the word for embraced, what so many of us do when after a week of being apart, we see each other and we greet each other in the Lord. What do we do? We embrace one another. It describes welcoming a dear friend. And this is the fiducia of saving faith. This is the third and final element of saving faith. This is the trusting. You see, saving faith, I will tell you yet again, is no mere intellectual exercise. It is the whole-souled embrace of God through Christ. It is taking all of God's truth and hugging it. <laughs> so Abraham received God's promises with delight and with joy, and he proclaimed their certainty by embracing them in faith. But that's not all that their faith displayed in their lives. There's a third part, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, the word acknowledged is the term that we've seen earlier several times in this book. It's, it's the word for a public profession of faith, what is often translated as confession. Back in chapter 4, verse 14, chapter 10, verse 23, both of them said, we must hold fast to our confession, to our acknowledgement. That is the content and the declaration of our Christian faith. This means that Abraham and his family publicly admitted to being temporary residents every place they lived. Their faith was not only a private matter, it was public knowledge. They publicly confessed their faith before men. They were not ashamed of God and his promises. They didn't claim to have. They didn't even desire citizenship in Canaan. No, they were seeking, according to verse 14, another homeland. Their real home, their real father's land, a fatherland that was not the place from which they came. Oh, biologically, uh, Haran was, or Ur was the place where they came. That was their fatherland. But no, no this, is, this is spiritual language. This is a spiritual fatherland. That's heaven. That's wherever God is. They were looking, according to verse 15, for a heavenly country, or according to verse 16a, the city of God. These three verbal phrases, having seen, 
having embraced, having confessed, show active and growing faith. This is living by faith. These are righteous men and women living by faith. This is what it looks like. What is seen, what is known from God, is embraced and then confessed. This is a movement from faith to greater faith. And notice that it lasts for a lifetime. And this brings us to our second point. They didn't just live in faith, they died in faith. They died in faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah then died in faith. Now, just so we're clear, they didn't die by faith. Faith didn't kill them. Right? All throughout this chapter, it's by faith, by faith, by faith. It's not that word in the Greek here. This is in faith, not by faith. So faith wasn't deadly to them. No, this means they died in the faith. They died believing. This is the proper work of faith, to keep going to the end. Again, Hebrews 3.14, Hebrews 6.11, where it says that saving faith perseveres. These all lived by faith all the way through their lives, and they didn't fail at the end. What we might call their last living act, that of dying. Because dying is still living, it's just losing it, right? It's losing life, but it's still living. It's mostly dead. It's being mostly dead, but not dead. This was also done in faith. Through their last moments, they didn't doubt or deny God. They didn't suddenly wish, oh, I wish I'd taken that piece of land in Canaan. Why did I settle for something in some never, never future land? No. They continued to believe God's promise, and they counted him worthy. Saving faith has a heavenly orientation. Not only in life, but in death. We might even say, especially in death. And that brings us to our third point. Living by faith again. Now, I'm not entirely satisfied with this phrase, so hear me out before you pounce on me. Living by faith again. Their deaths did not end their existence. These four are all alive. Well, how do we know that? Well, in general, we know this because it's the teaching of the Bible that all men at death, that is when the soul is separated from the body, continue to exist in what we call the intermediate state. That's the state of existence where though dead in the body, the souls or spirits still live. But more specifically, we know that these particular people are alive. Why? Again, Jesus has told us this. In Matthew 22, verses 32 and 33, he quotes Exodus 3.6. And he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus said he's not the God of the dead, 
but of the living. So long after their physical deaths, I mean hundreds, over a thousand years later, God says, I am the God of Abraham. Present tense, I am. So Jesus says, so they must be alive. God is still in covenant with these people. There are promises made to them. He is their God, therefore they must be living. So Abraham and his family are now experiencing the next stage of salvation and promise fulfillment. But remember, this is an intermediate state state they're in. For believers, the intermediate state is one both of blessedness, right? What did Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise, right? That's the intermediate state. But it's also one of expectation. Not everything promised has come for them. Oh, they're closer to it than when they walked on the earth. But they're not fully there yet, are they? Yes, they're in heaven, but there's more heaven to come. And so faith and hope must still, in some sense, function. They are not now experiencing full salvation. They don't have the resurrection of their bodies. The creation of the new heavens and new earth hasn't taken place yet. And so the fulfillment of God's ultimate promise to them hasn't occurred yet. So in that sense, they are still living by faith. And and hence my perhaps inadequate living by faith again heading. I know, we know from our Bibles, that they are living by sight in a way that they weren't here on the earth. But they still have not received the things promised. And all of that isn't just deduced from other parts of Scripture, but is reflected in verse 16. So, after explaining their story in verses 13 through 15 in the past tense, verse 16 is in the present tense. In fact, some translations actually begin the verse this way. But as it is now, they desire a better country. Or others do it this way. They, even now, desire a better country. What? Now? They desire? What? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah have gone into the presence of God. And yet, because the promises are not yet fulfilled, they are still desiring a better country. They are still longing for and trusting God for the final heavenly country. They are, in a sense, living by faith again. And so God is not ashamed to be called their God. He delights in them and approves of them. They openly, publicly, in word and deed, while on the earth, confessed him before men. And they continue to believe God. And so he openly and publicly, in word and deed, will confess them. How does he confess them by word? By giving them the almost unimaginable honor of adding their names to his name. 
You know, it's one thing for us to go, God is my God. By, by covenant mercy, God is my God. It's another thing for God to say, um, one of my names is I'm the God of Abraham. What an honor. <laughs> the Savior adds a sinner to his name? Y yes. I am the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. I'm the God of Carlo. I'm the God of Ron. I'm the God of, now I'll get about a half dozen of you, David. Right? And on and on the list could go. He says in Exodus, this is my name forever. He will never desert. He will never become ashamed of his believing ones. So that's how God, in word, responds to our confession in word. And then we made a confession in deed. What is God's confession in deed? Well, in part, is he prepares a city. God isn't ashamed to be called their God, so he prepares a city. They will live the life of God in the renewed creation. They will forever be at rest, at home. One of the most glorious words in any human language. Right? Home. It evokes all kinds of good things, even for those of us who didn't grow up in a good home. There they will be permanent citizens in their father's land, enjoying all the fruits of faith that are found in the imperishable promises of God. Oh, what a future. <laughs> oh, what a future. And all of this is the gift of God. Well, let me give you three uses. These verses make it plain first that faith is a lifelong calling. Faith is a lifelong calling. Temporary faith is no saving faith. It is faith that endures to the end that saves, as the scripture says in this book and many other places. These four all lived in faith, and they died in faith. As they began, they continued, and they finished. And it must be the same with us, so that one day someone can say, she died in faith. He died in faith. Now, thankfully, God, God's gift of faith never dies. It perseveres, supported by his word and spirit. And so his command to endure in faith to the end isn't the impossible one that it might strike some of us. It's not an easy one, necessarily. <laughs> but it's God's work. And so it won't fail in you, believer. Faith is a lifelong calling. Secondly, every Christian's life is a pilgrim's progress. Every Christian's life is a pilgrim's progress. Every true believer 
is homesick. And the older you get, and the more troubles you've seen, the more quickly you get homesick. <laughs> True believers long for life with God in the heavenly places. This world simply doesn't satisfy those who have seen what God has in store for those who believe. Believers know that they were made for so much more than what this world offers. And so they very deliberately live lives as exiles, as pilgrims, as strangers in this world. Oh yes, the world is constantly calling to them to return. Come back to your homeland. Come back to your fatherland. And they keep answering, no, I will not. I will not return to the world. I will not go back to the far country that God rescued me from. They will not return to a life of unbelief and sin. Why? Because they have been given great and precious promises of a better country. And they possess a faith that celebrates the reality of those promises even before they are here in time and space. And so they spend this life traveling. Talking about this, Augustine uses the word uh, Christians peregrinate, he says. Now that's, a, that's an archaic word we don't use anymore, unless some of you are good readers and know the word peregrine. Right? either from fiction or birds. Right? But that's what we are. We're peregrinators. We're wanderers. We're journeyers. Pilgrims don't feel settled here, and they don't give their ultimate allegiance to anything in this life. Their goals are much higher. They are actually aiming for God himself. They're aiming for his salvation and for the delights that can only come through truly knowing God in Christ. So I say to you again, saving faith has a heavenly orientation. My friends, does this describe you at all? <laughs> is, is, does this in some measure fit with who you are and how you live. Are you a pilgrim traveling home to God? But I didn't say for this point that every Christian is a pilgrim. I said every Christian's life is a pilgrim's progress. So you are not, if you're a Christian, just a pilgrim, you're in progress. <laughs> Pilgrims don't stand still. Amen. That's about all we can say about them. They keep going, they keep walking, they progress. Amen. And they do this by following the exact same course that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah followed. 
pilgrims receive promises from God and they believe them. More than that, they happily embrace those promises and they live in accordance with them and they publicly confess that their ultimate loyalty is to God in heaven. So are you growing in the knowledge of the promises of God? Are you growing in trusting them? Are you growing in putting them into practice in your life? Do you increasingly live in this world as if it's not your home? Do those who know you best understand that you live by faith, looking forward to the city of God? Are you living a pilgrim's progress? Well, thirdly and finally, this paragraph teaches us that if you will confess God, he will confess you. If you will confess God, he will confess you. Romans 10 teaches that you must not only believe in your heart, but you must confess with your mouth to be saved. Faith cannot only be private or you ought to suspect it. Faith must be more than a private opinion. It must be our public lifestyle. And so we are here. And so we are here. This doesn't mean shoving Jesus down the throat of every person that you come into contact with. It does mean identifying with God and his promises and living with a heavenly orientation, with a view to the future with God. You know, we confess God and we take his name upon ourselves when we are converted and especially in baptism. That's what we're doing in baptism. We're putting God's name on ourselves. We're covenanting with him. And then like for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is not ashamed to be called not just their God, but our God. Surely, this is one of our greatest honors, that he is our God, and we don't just bear his name, he bears our name. I trust we all understand, those of us who know our sin, understand that we should bear his name, but that he would be known as our God? seems almost too good to be true and yet this is what's promised by Christ in John 20. I ascend to my father and your father. I go to my God and your God. But Jesus also warned that those who would be his disciples have to list, have to have to do this. If you are ashamed of me and my words, my promises, I'll be ashamed of you when I return. So confess God and he will confess you. Be ashamed of him in this life. I don't mean one time when you... I mean, that's your lifestyle. You don't want to have anything to do with God. It's, the burden 
of being a Christian for you is so great that you would rather be ashamed of God so your friends will like you. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about lifestyle, not individual sin. But if you're ashamed of Jesus that way, when he comes back, he will be ashamed of you. May God give us grace to confess him in faith, in truth, and in endurance. Let's pray.